Welcome to the Bluegrass Podcast. Today we're talking with Dan Eisenstein, author of Tales from the Kentucky Hemp Highway, and who worked to build out his Kentucky Hemp Trail project. I wanted to talk to Dan because his book is a wealth of information about the history of the hemp industry in Kentucky. And we have a great conversation about Central Kentucky, about the hemp industry that developed there, and some of the historical oddities in Kentucky. I hope you enjoy it. And welcome to the Bluegrass Podcast. She said, now I'm a red-headed galactic installation portal revolving around the sun. If you want to go ahead and get started um so i mean the best place to start is always the beginning i heard that you started this project in graduate school and it kind of developed from there well what happened was uh while i was in graduate school um this would have been 1991 to 1993 um i, re- I was in a popular culture curriculum multidisciplinary got to look at fun cool stuff and i initially went there to to do Grateful Dead studies. And I was like, oh, this is, people are doing this already. Mm-hmm. And so I did a paper about outlaw folk heroes and I used um, cannabis growers as the subject. And I did an interview with a friend of mine and um, and it was really well received. And so when I went to write my thesis, I started to think about what I wanted to do writing about cannabis. And I looked at, because it was a popular culture program, I wanted to look at an artifact and examine it. And I started looking at High Times Magazine. Um, But I didn't know what I wanted to say. So I did all this research about cannabis history and hemp and High Times Magazine. And at the end of a year and a half, I had nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I started working in, you know, a completely unrelated field in manufacturing. An injection molding with plastic. So it kind of circles back to the hemp thing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but when all of that 20 years of business stuff kind of ended, it was around 2014, 2015, 2016. I was kind of transitioning. And I was like, I'm tired of doing this stuff that doesn't mean anything to me, where I'm just, I'm making a good living, but I'm empty inside. Mm-hmm. And the, the hemp pilot program had just gotten passed. And I started looking at ways I can contribute well, I've been out of the game for a long time, so I didn't know anybody. So there was no way to bridge what I knew from manufacturing and industry to the hemp industry because I didn't know the right people. So I just started writing. Mm-hmm. And it's what I really wanted to do all along anyway. I just didn't have the guts. But at 50 years old, 50 some odd years old, it's like you do it now or you never do it and you live a life of regret. And so the idea of writing about cannabis and specifically like history and stuff like that certainly started in graduate school. It just, it was a midlife career change too. Mm. And so I guess working with that sort of cannabis relationship in the beginning, when did it transfer to sort of, I mean, you talked about working in manufacturing. Was there ever a point with the book where it was like cannabis and hemp or when did that change come in? Well, when I started looking at doing a book, I started this hemp highway thing as a way to tap into the hemp industry. Like Kentucky has the bourbon trail and the Lincoln heritage trail Mm. and um, 
there's a civil war trail and all these different things that you could kind of drive to that are connected. Right. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't anything about hemp. I think there's actually a hemp heritage trail now that um, the Kentucky hempsters put together, but I wanted to do something of my own and I trusted my, you know, research a lot. And I went into looking at the stories behind the historical roadside markers. So like when you go to Danville, it says that the first hemp crop in Kentucky was 1775 and it was planted by this guy, Archibald McNeil. Great. That's all you get. Mm-hmm. And when you go into um, John Hopkins or James Hopkins book, uh, History of the Hemp Industry in Kentucky, that's all you get on Archibald McNeil is that he brought the first hemp crop in and said, who the hell was he? What mm-hmm. happened to him? And so after about two years of just kind of self-publishing articles on LinkedIn about the different stories I found behind the roadside markers, I realized I had enough material to do a book. And I approached Arcadia Publishing, who does the, um, they focus on local history stories. Mm-hmm. And, and they they picked up on it. And, and it was really cool because you know, I had a lot more work to do when I really started settling in to do the research. I was, I just kept finding so much information and it was, I left a lot of meat on the bone. I mean, there's enough material to do more for sure. So then what's your favorite story that didn't make it into the book? Oh, wow. That didn't make it into the book. Wow. That's a good one. I mean, (laughs) I didn't really do much with the, um, early part of Lexington. Like I know that like Thomas and Peter January had a, a, I mean, I think there's a bed and breakfast now on third street that used to be, I think it's the Peter January uh, office for his hemp factory. I didn't touch any of that. So um, wow. The, the, my favorite story coming that I had to leave on the table. That's so, that's a, such a tough one. It isn't as much stories as it is like these narrative threads that I didn't pick up on. I didn't go into. Um, I really didn't do as much on like, I think there's a whole book to be done on Kentucky river mills. And I actually think there's a guy um, looking at including Kentucky river mills in his own book about the mills of Frankfurt. So there's so much in there. Um I, you know, what I tried to do was condense my stories enough so that I could get as much as possible. And then people could kind of do a little bit of their own digging for more. Mm-hmm. So it like sort of talking about the area, talking about the early days of Lexington, a lot of sort of the hemp highways along US 68 sort of in that particular stretch of road and then central Kentucky in general, it seems like when I was reading through the book. Yeah, actually, that, thank you for mentioning it. Um, yeah, you actually, there was um, Nature's Rhythm back right before, a little bit before COVID approached me about actually doing a, a roadside highway pickup thing in the name mm-hmm. of the Hemp Highway. So we can literally name US 68 the Hemp Highway. But initially, that was the main road to get products to the Kentucky River or to a market. You know, and then from the mm-hmm. Kentucky River, they head down to the or not the Kentucky River, I'm sorry, the Ohio River and from the Ohio to the Mississippi. It was the quickest route, more or less, um, especially after they got the road put in. And so a lot of material went up U.S. 68 to um, 
Maysville. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, you know, one of the things I want to pull on a little bit more is there's a document I found up at the, um, I believe it's the Gateway Museum in Maysville, their regional museum. There was a document from Henry Clay or Henry Clay's son about some textiles and some and some yarns that they were trying to sell at the hemp market in Maysville. Mm. So I was, I'm sure that there's more information once you start digging into like Henry Clay's papers or something like that. Um, oh, here's one that's that I didn't have enough time to really dig into. The roadside marker in Madison County is about a spinning factory at Silver Creek. And it was like Henry Clay was one of the investors and a bunch of other notables in the early days of Lexington. And it was like one of the first publicly held companies in the state. It was they did a stock offering. And I didn't find much information about that. And I'd love to go back and find out more about how long they lasted, um, where exactly they were located. I don't think the road sign was anywhere near where that that facility was but i have no mm-hmm. idea i haven't didn't just i didn't i didn't find enough information you know when i was a kid you used to like get into the creek beds and walk up in miles up and down the creek beds and i'm not a kid anymore so i can't get away <laughs> with doing that you know somebody see this old man creeping around in the creek beds and probably put a bullet in my butt <laughs> yeah and you had a couple i think it was a documentary i was watching where you were talking about going to some different places where you would find old hemp equipment in the barn, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, there's a couple of cool places along um, U.S. Well, old uh, Richmond Road heading out of Lexington, right near where you get to where old Richmond Road hits I-75. Mm-hmm. There's actually a place called Boone Creek Outdoors, and it's a zip line tour. But it's built or the zip lines on the grounds of an old hemp mill. So like when you take the walking tour, there's like these rock buildings, rock walls and stuff like that, that were built back in the 1790s. And that's really neat. And that's publicly accessible. You know, I mean, it's it's a commercial thing. They charge you to walk down there. Mm-hmm. But it's a really neat experience. And it's an early industrial site in Fayette County. I mean, I think I want to say that this guy, Eli Cleveland, where the it was his his original property, I want to say he came to Kentucky in like the 1780s, the early 1780s. Mm. And uh, and he pops up in all sorts of places, like when um, George Rogers Clark is trying to get supplies to go chase the indians he's like he stands up and he says this is illegal you can't take my stuff and they at gunpoint they put him and his wife at gunpoint and they said well you know we're taking this stuff over your dead body or not mm-hmm. i mean so he's he comes up a few times and then um god i, I tell you if about four years ago I had a half a million dollars sitting in my pocket. I would have bought this place. They, I could have probably bought it. Um, out in Paris, Kentucky, there's a place, uh, Woodford Spears and Son. It's right along the, the US 68 when you're going in. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the seven, in that, sorry, 1890s, 
I forget which one it is. I think it's E.F. Spears, who was like served as a captain in the Confederacy. He opened a seed and supply store. And eventually they put in one of the first decorticators, like an electrical decorticator. Mm-hmm. And they were processing hemp there in the early 1900s up until like 1939. And then for some reason, they got out of it right when the, at least that's what I found so far is they got out of it right when the Second World War started. When I went there, you know, somebody, had, I guess back in the 90s, somebody had taken some tour and snapped a picture of this old machine. I walked out there and I just happened to run into the guy that owns the place. And he was a little leery at first because I'm sure he doesn't want a ton of people running out there to check this out because it's he's rented it out it's a working business they just do the business around these there's two pieces of equipment in a in like a warehousing building and one of them's the decorticator and the other one's the the scutcher i think is what it's called and basically that softens the fiber so it's and it's set up i mean it's where they shut it off back in the 1930s and then if you follow the, the pathway, there's, you know, one of the things that's, that's really neat is this all backs up to the railroad. So he was bringing in the raw hemp through one door, passing it through the decorticator, passing it through the scutcher, taking it down to the warehouse, putting it, bailing the material, and then mm-hmm. rolling it right out to the train cars. It was a really efficient setup. It was like, it was like he had taken a lean manufacturing seminar. <laughs> And I was surprised by how much of these old buildings and sort of old equipment is around. You've got some great photos in here, too, of old houses and, you know, Southern style mansions that sort of were built on hemp or built by people in the hemp industry. Yeah, it's really neat. I mean, there's a bunch of them in um, in Georgetown. And I don't know if I got the picture in there, but this one guy's got this house. It goes back to like the set again, back to the 1790s or something. It's been built up and it, it the. I think it's Jackson Street now, but it used to be called Rope Walk Alley. Mm-hmm. And the guy's backyard, you can still see the original foundation for the rope walk. And it gives you an idea of just how freaking long these things were. Because it's like this huge backyard. And, and again, when I went out there and, and explained what I was doing, he was really nice about letting me kind of, you know, like, you, know, you don't mind if I walk around on your yard and take a picture or anything. And he was really nice about that. Out of curiosity, the rope walks are mentioned a lot. Was this something that people would do? Like, was this, what were these? So basically, um, if you're going to make rope or any sort of cordage that's used for an industrial use, like if you're going to use it to tie down freight or you're going to use it with a rope and tackle thing to, you know, lift stuff, Mm -hmm. um, you need to make that rope a certain, I, I guess you a diameter you have to have, and i don't know that the terminology that you would use to describe how many threads per per twist and overall diameter or anything like that mm-hmm. and so these buildings were set up to twist the hemp fiber into these long into these wider longer lengths of cordage and, and that you know initially it was um all work that was well predominantly done by enslaved people Mm-hmm. And it involved walking backwards and twisting the rope. And eventually, I think there's um, the county museum in Shelbyville, the Shelby County Historical Society Museum. It's a picture of it on their website. That, there's like a little metal thing that you could start using to 
help do the twisting that was invented probably in the 1800s or something. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But these long wooden buildings, they were dark and low, um, low ceilings, and people would just walk backwards and spin rope. And there were all, that was like the first level of industrialization. Like when you come into the, into the territory, Kentucky's a frontier state, you know, because the first people settled Kentucky just as the, uh, just prior to the Revolutionary War starting, right? Mm-hmm. And so after the war, it's like, what, like the 15th state or something like that? 14th, 15th state. I can't remember if it was Bus or Vermont. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it was frontier. And so people come out there and they're using hemp and they're just making like with a, with a breaking it themselves and spinning it with an old fashioned spinning wheel and twisting it with like wool or something like that to make clothing and thread. And then the next level up would be to start making rope and twine, which would be, you know, like in a rope walk. Mm -hmm. And then in 1803, that's when John Wesley Hunt and his house is um, down on the corner of mill street and um second i believe he opens the first had been bagging factory in the country so he's making what he's making is uh bailing materials for the cotton industry and mm-hmm. he's he's estimated he does like a test run and he, he goes down there and they're like if you can match the price and the quality we'd rather buy from you and then buying it from Scotland or France, or I think it's probably a lot of it's probably coming from Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, And he sets the first factory up in the U S in 1803. And he just, I mean, he makes tons of money and then everybody else looks at him and says, I got to do what this guy is doing. And right around the time the market gets saturated, he sells his factory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kentucky goes through several boomer bus cycles, you know, it seems like a, a 10 year cycle. The 1820s, eight, 1820s are all right. Maybe the 1830s are slow. And what ends up happening is by the 1850s, the frontier shifted. Now the frontier is like Missouri. Mm-hmm. That's the new state. And you see a lot of Kentuckians moving to Missouri. And that's another story I don't really bring up in the book. So one of the people that moves from Kentucky to Missouri is the father of Frank and Jesse James. Mm-hmm. And apparently he was a hemp farmer because in his will, he either left some broken hemp or some, some hemp tools or something. So he was yet another one of these people that, you know, and, and apparently he got educated at Georgetown College and, and knew a few things, but he followed the people out to Missouri and then I guess went into being a preacher or something. <laughs> Nice so it's kind of weird that the, the Frank and Jesse James have some sort of connection to the hemp industry. And I think that pops back up a little bit when Jesse James is coming back into central Kentucky, right? Yeah, isn't it Russellville is the first actual bank holdup they do? Mm-hmm. I think it's that or one of the first ones. Yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, one of the po- coolest people I met through this whole process, um, this guy down in... Uh, Danville, when I put my, you know, the, the Danville paper, I sent out a little press release and they did a story about my website. And this fellow, he, he immediately emailed me and said, I'm calling BS on you. There is no way that there were people planting hemp in 1775. 
And I said, you know what? I didn't invent that. This is where I found it. And he looked it up and he said, oh, okay. And he actually is descended from, I'm looking to see if I put the guy's name in here. He's descend, Eric James. His name is, mm-hmm. and he's a descendant of Jesse and Frank James. And he owns the jessejames.com website, but he's a historian. And he actually helped turn me on to a bunch of stories in Danville including the John Nichols stories, because he lives in the business office from John Nichols Rope Walk. That's super interesting. Going around, were there any experiences where people might have taken it the wrong way when you were, you know, going and talking to people? You know, early on, because my first logo had a full cannabis leaf over the state of Kentucky, Mm -hmm. and like Jen Canna, because I approached them about a project, and they just you can't put that on your logo. My God, you're mixing these two things. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, face plant sort of thing. And I revised my logo and now it's just a single finger leaf with the high. Anyway, but later on, I go to the retail store in Winchester before they had to close it. And the freaking leaf is everywhere. It's on the wall. It's on their counters. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's okay for us to do it, but don't you do it because you'll confuse people. And I did. I played a little bit with that. I, uh, uh, and I still do a little bit. I like double entendres and puns and stuff like that. So I like saying, you know, you know, roll up the hemp highway, guys. And people, oh, you can't say that. Oh, my. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> if, if somebody turns their head because they think I'm talking about something illicit and I keep their attention long enough to slide a history lesson in, that's a win. Mm-hmm. Well, and the history is good in this, too. It's really well researched. And I think a lot of people, when they read it, might be really surprised because sort of like you're talking about, there aren't a lot of signs for it. But I mean, it's chock full of different places, different people that were involved with this, how much money was made out of it. Like, Yes, yes, I agree. And, and some of the places that you may see every day that you didn't realize, like the Comb Center down in um, on the campus of Center College, where they're like, I guess it's their you know, campus communications offices are, mm-hmm. is in an old warehouse that was erected in the early 1900s. And they were shipping hemp out of there to the naval shipyard in, in Boston until at least 1940. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go in there and, and you know, it is a public building. You can go in there. The floors are original. They're still where the scale was set up. It's there's like you get up into the top part into the attic and there's like these wooden beams and there's like people's initials carved into the beams. It's just it's fascinating stuff. And and on the outside of the building, if you look right, you can see where it still says hemp painted by one of the windows. And I just I think people pass that stuff every day and don't realize that it was huge. It just, you know, prior to tobacco becoming the number one cash crop in the early 1900s, it really was you know, everything to the Kentucky economy. Mm-hmm. And you know, liquor and horses are great, but, you know, hemp tied it all together. Mm-hmm. So there's one county, Mason County, where you sort of describe it as outside of the bluegrass region. Why do you think things were sort of centralized like that? Was it because of the river and being able to move it or? I think there's, there's some of that. I think that the bluegrass region is considered the most fertile or initially was the most fertile area. It's often referred to as like the garden section or something like that. I find that (laughs) um, in the, the Lewis Collins 
history book that he wrote in the 1840s, he refers to the Lexington, Fayette, Bourbon, Jasmine. You know, Fayette's really right in the middle of that, that garden stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Clark County towards the eastern part, it gets a little bit more rough and mountainous. But, you know, so I think it had a lot to do with the soil. And I think it had a lot to do with the industriousness of the people that settled here. You know, they had a certain vision. Nobody, you know, one of the guys that I think is really prominent in Lexington, John Wesley Hunt, he's really complicated. He, he built the first bagging factory. He was also one of the pioneers in developing the interstate slave trade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a, that's a hor- horrific thing. But then again, his ability to turn his wealth into things that benefited the community, like the first mental hospital or, or helping be one of the, the people, that in, people that endowed Transylvania University, it's, it's this balance. It's really fascinating. And I think that the people in Lexington, they made so much money and they invested back in the community. And that's why it kind of, I think it really blossomed here and attracted a certain type of person. Well, and it also sort of talking about helping things develop. I'm interested, are there any points where you feel like maybe there was, how do I say this right? Not an absence, but maybe there were gaps in how people talked about Kentucky history because hemp sort of got pushed to the side a bit. I, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, I think it became something people... Um, you know, when I first moved here, when I was 10, I'd hear adults talk about finding hemp growing along a fence row at their grandfather's farm and everybody chuckle and mm-hmm. talk about the horses acting funny or the cows acting funny. And it was kind of like this dirty little secret. And even though, you know, um, I, I think Gatewood was he he put he put he, whether you liked him or hated him or whatever you thought his agenda was, he got people talking about it. And he really got people talking about its historical connection. You know, they were right. Mm-hmm. He wanted, he didn't just want hemp. He wanted everything, mm-hmm. and you know, and people had to, but at the end of the day, he really got the ball talking, rolling about discussing how important this industry was to, to Kentucky. And, you know, fortunately people haven't destroyed all of that information. Um, one of the f- coolest things I got to, to work with um, the place out in in Bourbon County, the the Spears factory, they had, and I think they got all the rest of the records in there in this warehouse building that was built in, or in the mill building. God, it's so wild to walk in there and there's this old gravity mill. And and so we go in there and he goes, Well, we've been storing all the records from when we closed the whole mill operation. And you go in there and it's from like the 1800s in these like banker boxes all the way up until like the 1950s and included in that was like 16 boxes of stuff that just had to do with the hemp industry. And I mean, the stuff in there was, it's just incredibly, I mean, nobody would have realized how incredibly involved they were one that they went all the way to 1939 before they called it quits Mm -hmm. and two, the projects that they were involved in. So there were, you know, the, the narrative is that it kind of disappeared in 1937, but it didn't because people were still, you know, Danville and and, and Paris were still shipping to, to the naval shipyard and they were still shipping to the naval shipyard out of Wisconsin. 
but just the, the, the story there is just insane. I'm like, I found this one letter and the guy's talking about, he's from like Bird and Sons, who's a, a cordage manufacturer in upstate New York. And he's talking to Spears about, are you planning on putting any hemp in for the next year? And Spears is like, I'm not planning on it. And they're like, well, with this war just started, because this is like October, 1939. So the Germans have just invaded Poland. Mm-hmm. England and France have just declared war on Germany. And England's, England buys out, from what I interpret, they bought out as much cordage as they could from American manufacturers. And last Spears chance, ended up right? like, pardon? I said last chance, right? Exactly. And Spears had like a bunch of crap in the end of their warehouse and they sold it all. And they're like, are you going to do it next year? And he's like, there's not enough people growing hemp in Kentucky right now. We're, we're probably not even going to continue. It. And that's really the end of the, the correspondence. But one of the, the guys from Bird talks about a buyer from England sniffing around upstate New York at all the cordage companies. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just fascinating stuff. And, and so, they get, uh, go ahead. Oh, no, continue. Oh, well, you know, I mean, they also got involved in, I guess it was 19, uh, I want to say 27, 29, something like that. They supplied um, hemp to the project to refurbish the USS Constitution. So in the 1920s, it had been sitting around floating in some dry dock somewhere, not in a dry dock, but floating around in some harbor decommissioned. So they, Mm -hmm. in the 20s, they turned it into a floating museum and they, you know, when the letter went out to raise money, the guys at Spears were like, well, you want to buy any hemp? (laughs) And they buy like, you know, $30,000 worth of hemp from Spears to put into the dang, to the restoration of the constitution. And, and all of that paperwork's there, the flyers, the letters, it's all now at the university of Kentucky, uh, MI King library for special collections. They finished cataloging it while COVID was going on. Out of curiosity, do they have any of it online for people to work out or do you have to go to the archives and like have them open it up for you? I know that like they used to have a couple boxes that um, a guy by the, I think a guy by the name of Craig Lee helped donate back in the 90s. There's like two or three boxes of stuff they had. And I know some of that's online. And I think they may be putting a lot of this other stuff online just because they may have had the time to do it. But I haven't really gone back there and checked yet, to be honest. Do you think they'll ever, out of curiosity, you'll do an update to the hemp highway if you were to find some more of the stories or? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that's kind of um, one of the cooler things that came out of all of this is um, I had met Chris Conrad, who wrote uh, Hemp Lifeline to the Future and edited The Emperor Wears New Clothes at a HIA thing in 2017. Mm-hmm. I kind of keep in touch with them. And I said, Hey, could you mention my book in your, in your newsletter and in whatever way you could give me a little, little sunshine. Mm-hmm. And about two weeks later, he called me up and he said, Hey, I got approached by somebody who wants to do a book and it's not really my, my area. It's got, they want a lot of historical stuff. Do you want to co- do a collaboration? And I'm like, my jaw just hit the ground. I'm like, what? <laughs> you want to collaborate. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have the opportunity if it wasn't for him. So, I mean, it's, it's really, and, and we don't have the book deal yet. We're still doing the proposal, but I'm like, holy moly, what a great opportunity. And it's the, it's a lot of the same 
subject matter, um, Kentucky hemp history, but with an emphasis on doing some more dig deeper digs in terms of like, um, it's going to be more chronological instead mm-hmm. of where this one's kind of like based on geography and I break it out by county. This will be more chronological and I'm maybe trying to tell a little bit more of a, I'm going to put more emphasis, more pressure on myself to tell the narrative as opposed to just finding all these stories. The people as much as the plants, not that there aren't people in here, but some of that. And then there's some themes I get into in the first book that I haven't really developed. Like, um, and that, you know, one of the obstacles Kentucky always has is they want to sell raw hemp to the Navy, but to get there from the start, you have to go down the river and around the, out of the Gulf of Mexico and up the, up the coast. And that mm-hmm. adds a lot of cost. And so when the railroad finally links Kentucky to the Eastern seaboard, you actually see people doing a really, you know, making a nice living sending hemp by rail to the Navy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's, it's not wide. It, how do I, how do I, there's like a couple of people in each little community that figure this stuff out. So it's like Spears and um, Bourbon County and this Hudson Davis and uh, or Hudson Banks and JC Davis and Boyle County. I think it's WB Nelson in Lexington has a hemp warehouse downtown near the rail yard. And he's doing the same thing, David Gay and, and Winchester. Mm-hmm. And these guys have all figured out that they can now with the railroad, they can get hemp to the naval shipyard and make good money, make really good money. And they're competing with the Russians. I mean, there, there's two different uh, naval uh, requisitions. One's put out for Russian hemp, one's put out for um, American hemp. And these Kentucky guys are, you know, making, getting tens of thousands of dollars per contract, which mm-hmm. is a lot of money in 1916. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the railroads is one thing I'm really looking at. The, the back of the road sign, signs, most of them have like a common back. And one of it, it talks about how it, at some point in like the 1880s, 1890s, Kentucky leads the country again for a brief period, producing all this hemp. Mm-hmm. And it's because binder twine has become like this, um, the reaper binder has become this farm implement that replaces three people on the on the farm can now be done by one person in this machine. Mm-hmm. That's a huge savings. And so the, the the common thought is that hemp was the ideal material, but when you start digging into it, the guy who invented it, they eventually, the company eventually starts making their own binder twine because so many companies start up to try to service them and the quality varies. Mm-hmm. And one of the companies that is created is called the National Cordage Company. And they're like seven different, they're like a, a trust. They're a legit trust that they create. And then they turn it into a company because of the um, Sherman Antitrust Acts in 18, I think 1880s. Mm-hmm. But their, their goal is to corner the market on cordage. And in order to do that, they're buying up all the jute and sisal overseas. They're buying up all the hemp. And so they're driving the price right way up. They're putting tons of cordage into inventory because, and and then if anybody opens a cordage factory, they're trying to buy them. Mm -hmm. And so they really, as much as the binder twine thing, they're, they're driving the price of raw hemp up. 
Well, meanwhile, because there's so many different people trying to capitalize on this market, the consistency of the twine suffers. And eventually, on the one hand, the manufacturer, and I guess it goes on to be eventually international harvester, and, and I would have to go back and look at notes for that. Mm-hmm. But they eventually bought, set up their own twine mill so that they can control all of the chain of supply chain, the incoming materials, what the quality is going out, and then make their warranties dependent on using their twine. So if you're a farmer and you're using Kentucky River Mills twine and your machine binds up, you've voided the warranty. The other thing that happens is National Cordage gets to the point where they're no longer worried about manufacturing cordage. They've realized how much money they can make with manipulating the stock market. Mm -hmm. And eventually they're bubble bus and they go from like $100, $130 a share to like, you know, like $30, $40 a share. And they cause um, a stock meltdown and an economic crisis in like 1893. I mean, it's not funny, but it's sort of... (laughs) Yeah, no, it's insane. And then what out of, what ends up coming out of it is like the the narrative on the um, on the back of the sign says that jute freed of tariff ends the hemp industry because now all of a sudden these guys are buying jute. But what they don't really get into is that the people that were had caused all this problem, the the cordage manufacturers, when they're doing the congressional follow up. They're like, well, do we need to like change the tariffs? What do we need to do? And they're like, no, the tariffs are all, you know, let's let's get, they wanted Sissel and Jew. Mm-hmm. The manufacturers did. So they actually pushed Congress to end the tariffs. And it's the farmer once again, or the um, industrialist in Kentucky who's trying to make use of the native fiber that ends up like, oh man, I just got screwed. I got, I got pinched in this little bubble. Mm-hmm. So how can people drive the hemp highway if they're looking to like learn more about this and do and hit up all these points? Where can they find how to do this? Nice. Thank you. If you go to my website, um, www.kentuckyhemphighway.com, there is a PDF that shows where all the markers are. And some of like there's some people that have sponsored us too. So like the Boone Creek Outdoors, it has a marker where their facility is. Mm-hmm. Um, Laura's Mercantile. And I, I think they got so much stuff going on now from when I first did the map, I got to update it. They've got their, their distillery. They've got the organic farm that they do a lot of events at. But so there's a map you can download. And then if you go to my website, and again, that's www.kentuckyhemphighway.com dot com um there are stories about these places and it, it kind of gives you an idea where they're at and, and it'll I, have links to different museums and stuff like that out of curiosity do you have an audio version where people can like drive and listen to it yeah it's funny you should say that that was um so when i started thinking about this i was talking to a guy who was um he was from seattle and he was consulting a local group about what to do with their hemp business and he kind of got frustrated because they were all over the map and and he was about my age a little bit older mm-hmm. but we started doing some grumpy old man stuff and <laughs> he said something about well when i used to live near valley no i used to live near gettysburg 
And when we had house guests that stayed too long, we'd give them this cassette and tell them to get lost for the day. And it was the audio tour of driving the battlefield. So the original idea was to do a bunch of audio tour stuff. I just haven't had the God, it's like you reminded me to get get on that project. Ding. You know, I could do some sort of like audio files that people can download for 25 cents and maybe monetize it or something. Mm-hmm. Well, even just the ease of it, right? You don't even get out of your car. You're driving along along that, you know, real beautiful country and just put it on the player, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and there's places where you can actually drive and see like, you know, um, see hemp growing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of neat. I remember the first time uh, it was around 2016 and they had the crop in I think 2015, 2016. It was 2015. They put the first co- some of the first crops out at Coldstream. And I was driving back from a business thing and I'd like stopped the car and, and backed up because what the heck did I just see? And it was a huge <laughs> field of hemp that UK had put out there. And I mean, it, it was just wild. And yeah, and it's it's a pretty it's it's pretty to look at, you know, I think. It mm-hmm. attracts a lot of birds. Do you have anything else that you want to mention in about the book or the tour before I let you go, Dan? Um, you know, it's it's available uh through the through Amazon, it's on the History Press and through Arcadia Publishing, Tales from the Kentucky Hemp Highway. You could go to my website to pick up some T-shirts or bumper stickers and, you know, that help fund the research and stuff like that. And hopefully in about six months, I'll have another book coming out. Well, we'll look forward to it, Dan. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Elijah. It was a pleasure. If you'd like to follow the podcast, we're at bluegrass underscore cannabis on Instagram at Bluegrass Canna on Twitter. And you can always find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Keep it tuned. We've got some interesting interviews coming up in the next few weeks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider giving it a share, a like, or a review.